0: As we begin this new short series together, the Gospel according to the Psalms, let me ask you a question. What does the Gospel have to do with the Psalms? If you know anything about the Psalms, they are... A book of 150 songs that are really smack dab in the middle of your Bible. If you took your Bible and you split it open in the middle, you would find the Psalms and there would be 150 of those in there. The Psalms, most of them, were written about a thousand years before Jesus ever came. Most of them were written by King David, the second king of Jerusalem, of, of Israel. And so I asked again, what could this song book? in the middle of your Bible, written a thousand years before Jesus ever came, have to do with Jesus Christ and His person and work? What could these songs have to do with Christmas? What could these songs have to do with Jesus' life and His death and His resurrection and ultimately His exaltation to the right hand of the Father? There's an incredible account In the end of the book of Luke, in Luke chapter 24, that helps shed a little bit of light on this for us. If you remember in Luke 24, we find one of these accounts that is really one of the most incredible events that have happened right after the most incredible event, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus rises from the dead. He begins to walk around in his glorified body. The disciples make their way to his tomb. They see that the tomb is empty. And then the scene moves from this empty tomb to Jesus walking on a road, what we call the road to Emmaus. So Jesus is walking on this road to this place called Emmaus. And there are a couple of men that he runs into. And they're having a conversation among themselves about all of the stuff that has happened recently in Jerusalem. And Jesus comes across and as you see Jesus do sometimes he plays dumb with these guys, You're like what are you talking about like what are all these events that have happened in Jerusalem And they begin to tell him haven 't you heard that there was this man who had died? He was put to death, and so this is the scene on the road to Emmaus and what Jesus does then is he begins to explain to these men himself from the Old Testament scriptures, but then the scene moves from this road to a room where all of the disciples apparently are, and Jesus enters into this room, and His disciples begin to panic. They think He's a ghost, right? They think that He's a spirit of some kind. And I want to pick up and read a little bit from the book of Luke, chapter 24. And you can follow along with me. I have this on the screen behind me. And as they were talking about these things, Jesus Himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and and feet, that it is myself? Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and he ate it before them. So he enters into their presence. They all think he's a spirit of some kind. And he's like, hey, look at my hands. Look at my feet. Hey, Why don't you just go ahead and give me something to eat? Like I'll prove to you that I have this functioning body that I am not a ghost. right?" And so he takes the fish and he eats it before them. beginning from Jerusalem. But verse 43 of that is what I really want to key in on. He says, I don't have it. I put the wrong verse in there. But this is what he says. Look in verse 43 if you have your Bible open there. He says, Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled so in an answer to our question what do the psalms have to do with the gospel what do the psalms have to do with Jesus' incarnation, his life, his death his burials, resurrection, all of that what do the psalms have to do with that, well apparently a whole lot Because as Jesus is interacting with His disciples in that room, He begins to show them, hey, let's open, let's grab the scroll and look at the Psalms, or let's recite the Psalms that you already know, and I'm going to prove to you that I am the Messiah from the Psalms. I'm going to prove to you that everything that the Psalms had to say has everything to do with Me. And so Jesus rises from the dead, goes to His disciples, and says, everything in your Old Testament has to do with me me. All of these illusions in the Psalms, all that David and the other psalmists wrote, it's all got to be fulfilled. And I'm going to be that fulfillment. I am what the Psalms were talking about. The book of Psalms is simply one big arrow that is pointing to Jesus. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians, all the promises of God find their yes in Him, in Jesus. And so as we approach our new short series and our sermon text this morning, Luke 24 helps us to lay a vital foundation. What do the Psalms have to do with the gospel? Everything. They have everything to do with the gospel. Because although it might be in kind of a a shadowy form, when you look back at the Psalms through the lens of Jesus, they have so much to say about Him. And one of the ways that you can see this is the way that the New Testament authors quote the book of Psalms. Do you realize that the Psalms are quoted over 100 times in the New Testament? And the text that Chris read for us, Psalm 40, is one of those times quoted by the author of the book of Hebrews. And so I'm going to pull a little switcheroo on you this morning. I said that we were going to be in Psalm chapter 40, and we technically will be in Psalm chapter 40. But I really want to show you the quotation of Psalm 40 in the New Testament, and we'll do that by looking at Hebrews chapter 10. So if you have your Bible, take it and turn to Hebrews chapter 10. A little bit of a bait and switch. wanted to read Psalm 40 for you, but then I really want to show you how it's quoted in Hebrews chapter 10. I want you to see how he interprets these verses from Psalm 40, which will help us to understand what is going on and how this psalm speaks of the gospel Specifically this morning, we're looking at Jesus' incarnation, His coming into this world, His first advent, and Hebrews chapter 10 sheds light on Psalm 40 for us. So, Hebrews 10, and I'll begin reading in verse 5. Consequently, now listen, when Christ came into the world, He said, and here's Psalm 40, "...sacrifices and offerings you have not desired." but a body you have prepared for me. Hear that? A body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. So you see some indications in there, don't you? The the writer of Hebrews provides his own commentary by saying, When Christ came into the world... That's just incarnation. And then there are a couple other indicators within the psalm itself. A body you have prepared for me. Psalm 40 actually says, an ear you have prepared for me. But what the author of Hebrews is doing is he's really he's paraphrasing it. He's following the Greek translation of that Hebrew text and just saying, a body you have prepared for me. A fleshly body Christ had prepared for him. And then also in verse 7, Behold, I have come to do your will, O god and so this raises an important question for us to consider when we consider when the new testament authors quote the old testament who's actually speaking here so in psalm chapter 40 is david speaking and then when we bring it over to hebrews 10 is david still speaking or who's talking in this moment who said these words well both of them said these words David said those words in his own historical context. They applied in his situation. They meant something for David in Psalm chapter 40 and the issues that he was uh, undergoing in that time. But the text of David does not just stay in its historical context. What the words from David here, specifically in these few verses, is they point and typify Jesus, they show Jesus, they show Christ. So they're the words not only spoken by David in his own historical context, but they're the words spoken of by Jesus as he's entering into the world, the author of Hebrews says. And so as we look at these few verses together, I just want to show you a couple of main ideas from this psalm that's quoted by the author of Hebrews this morning. You can find them on the back of your bulletin, and here they are. The sacrifices that would not do, and the sacrifice that... That would do. So, first, the sacrifices that would not do. A careful reader of these couple of verses would see that David mentions at least four kinds of Old Testament sacrifices. He says in verse 5, sacrifices and offerings. He says in verse 6, burnt offerings and sin offerings. And I think that what the author is doing is he's showing us these four offerings and he's being comprehensive. He's he's talking about the whole ceremonial sacrificial system that the Old Testament talks about. And if you and I are very honest, when we get through our when we're reading through our Bible, we hit Genesis, wow, that's a great book. Exodus, great, Leviticus, with all these ceremonial laws and sacrifices. like we just stop in our Bible reading, right? Leviticus is tough chewing, but it is so important for us to understand all of the sacrifices that they were that they were providing, right? That they were offering up to the Lord and the sacrifices that he desired. But the author, David, and then subsequently the author of Hebrews, what he's doing by, by listing these four offerings is he's showing us this comprehensive ceremonial system. He's talking about the whole bit. This whole system that the Old Testament talks about. All of the animal killing that had to be done because of human sin. All of the birds that had to die. All of the bulls that had to die. The lambs. Even the flower that would be offered at times. He's being comprehensive. Commentator Peter O'Brien helps us to understand what the author of Hebrews means with these four designations about the offerings. So he mentions first this word sacrifices. And he likely has in mind really any kind of animal sacrifice that they offered, but specifically likely a reference to the peace offerings, which would have been an offering that would have brought an element of peace between the worshiper and God. Second, he mentions the general word offering, but likely a reference to a meal offering, which again is mentioned in the book of Leviticus. Third, he mentions the burnt offering Which referred to an animal that you would have presented that would have been completely consumed on the altar. Imagine that. That you lay your animal on the altar, they set this flame and it just engulfs this animal and it burns it all. There is none of this that is going to be eaten as leftovers. It is completely obliterated by the fire. And this offering was meant to take away sin, this burnt offering. And then fourth you have the sin offering, which would have been a bull or a goat or a dove, a pigeon, or again, that flower that was used as a sacrifice for sins that were even committed unintentionally. Think about that. Even for the sins that you committed without intention, an animal had to die for that. And so David lists all of these in Psalm 40 in order to give us this comprehensive grasp that the whole system, though, this whole ceremonial, all of these sacrifices all of it, it wasn't enough. The peace offering and the wave offering and the burnt offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, all of it, it wasn't enough. So David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wants us to see this. He wants us to see that this whole Old Testament ceremonial system was in place to placate God's wrath for a time against sinners. But it was ultimately... Not that satisfying to him at all. In fact, doesn't our text that we're looking at say that he doesn't desire it? He doesn't take pleasure in it? Look at verses 5 and 6 of Hebrews 10. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. And so for how long was this whole system in place for the Jewish people? And it ultimately was not quite cutting it. It was instituted by God. It was His plan. All of it was His design. This was something that He commanded. But it never really did what needed to be done. And even on the human side, God's not quite satisfied with it. But then on the human side, it never could give humans what they needed unsatisfying to god but it also didn't give human beings the ability to be led into god's presence in a full and final way friends the jews were not saved by faith in a bull dying for them are we clear on this that the salvation of old testament saints had nothing to do with performing works of the law you could not be saved by performing works of the law can you no of course not So the Old Testament saints were saved by looking forward to the Christ coming, this Messiah coming, the promises of God that He had given, just like we're saved by looking back at the promises of God and the Christ that has already come. We are saved in the same way, by grace through faith in Christ. What the Jews needed was not a bull or a goat or a lamb. What the Jews needed was a person. What they needed was Jesus. So this brings up a massive problem from the human perspective. That ultimately we're not led into the presence of God fully and finally by a bull dying in our place. But this was something that was already prearranged and settled within the Godhead. So the problem is that we cannot be saved by our own works. We could never do enough to impress God. We can never do enough obedience even to God's law to impress God. And you break part of God's law? You've broken all of it. The great hymn writer Isaac Watts beautifully notes in one of his hymns, not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away the stain. All of the blood of hundreds of thousands or millions of animals on those Jewish altars could give me peace with God. Millions of animals could be sacrificed for Brandon Dyer and it wouldn't be enough. I am a lawbreaker. I have broken God's law and the ceremonial system of animal slaughter in in place wasn't enough to forgive my brokenness. The suffering of an animal after animal after animal, their writhing torture under the hand of the priest. It's not enough. The Jewish altar was a fountain filled with blood that was ultimately unsatisfying to God and ultimately ineffective to take care of my sin. And as it turns out, it would not and could not be the blood of an earthly lamb that would satisfy God, but the wrath of the heavenly lamb, the death of the heavenly lamb that would satisfy The wrath of God. It wouldn't be an earthly lamb. It could never be an earthly lamb. It had to be a heavenly lamb. Isaac Watts continues But Christ, the heavenly lamb, takes all our sins away, a sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. And so he would be the sacrifice that would do. The Christ, the Messiah. The Lion of Judah, David's eternal son, the one who would crush the head of the serpent, the one who was born to a virgin, Emmanuel, the bread of life, the light of the world, the great high priest, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth, the word, the savior of the world, the alpha and omega, the I am, the king of kings, the son of God, the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, the prince of peace, Jesus of Nazareth. Like that's it. It's not going to be a lamb or a bull or a goat. It's going to be the lamb from heaven. Jesus of Nazareth. He would be the only sacrifice that would do. The only thing was that the heavenly lamb Jesus. How is he going to get from there to here? Like in Maine. Well, it's a New England thing too. but You can't get there from here. Like how does Jesus get there? From there to here? How does he get from heaven to earth? How is he going to pull this off? Look again at verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but listen, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, This is Jesus speaking. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. So we had the sacrifices that wouldn't do, and now we have the sacrifice that would do. So these verses 5 to 7, they're repossessed by Jesus. Jesus takes these words, he repossesses them for himself. We're to read these words as though they are the words right from the lips of Jesus, as the author of Hebrews shows us in the beginning of verse 5. When Jesus came, he said. And what couldn't be more clear is that these words are a reference to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. That preface. When Christ came into the world, this is the first advent, this is Christmas. We toss around this word incarnation around a lot at Christmas time, but what exactly does that mean? Well, one author defined it this way The process whereby Christ the Word, who was with God and was God, became man. The process whereby Christ the Word, who was with God and was God, became man. And this really is such an important thing for us to understand, friend. This is, this is part of why, in accordance with the church calendar, we hit Christmas every single year. Because we have to understand what the Advent season, what this incarnation is all about every time it comes around. We cannot and we must not get the incarnation wrong. We need to understand what happened. We need to understand the humanity and the divinity of Jesus. Because quite frankly, if you mess this up, you become a heretic. We need to understand that Christ was uncreated as God. Yet he was conceived in the womb in the woman through the Holy Spirit. We need to understand that Christ shared fully in the glory of God, fully God and glory, yet he chose to humble himself to this earth. <coughs> in fact, the church combated heresy in the 4th and 5th centuries in part by formulating what we know as the Nicene Creed in which these words can be found. That we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, of His Father before all worlds, God of God, Light of Light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, and then further down, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. And so Jesus is all of these things. All the way back in the 4th and 5th centuries, they're thinking through and having to ratify these things and to, to have this Council of Nicaea which ended up forming this Nicene Creed which has been recited for hundreds and hundreds of years by the church. And how important it is to understand that Jesus is God of God. He's begotten. But he's not made. He's very God of very God. He's of one substance with the Father. Yet he was incarnate. (coughs) And so Jesus, he took on flesh and the Holy Spirit supernaturally and non-sexually fertilized an egg of the Virgin Mary. The incarnate Christ comes forth. The connection to our Psalm 40 in Hebrews 10 passage, being being that word body. In Hebrews 10.5, he says, that body you have prepared for me. So Christ is in heaven, speaking these words. Christ knew how all of this was going to play out. He knew he would take a body, but this body would not be a body like you and I, or affected by Adam like your body and my body has been affected by the fall of Adam. So unlike the one that we carry around every day, corroded by original sin from Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, loaded with our own sins that we willingly and unwillingly commit, the body of Jesus Christ, prepared by God, was uninhibited by original sin, unstained by any willful or or unwillful sin by Jesus. It was a perfect body. So thereby, by taking on this human body, we need to be clear that taking on this flesh in no way detracts from his divinity. In no way, by taking on a body, did Jesus somehow become less. However, despite being fully God, equal to the Father and the Spirit, Christ would willingly submit himself to the Father's plan of redemption. So before time began, the Father and the Son, along with the Spirit, covenanted together to redeem a people for His name. It was always the plan of God for Christ to enter this world as the incarnate God-man in order to redeem us for the sake of the Father. He would come to this earth as the begotten, incarnate Son of God, live that perfect life, die on the cross for sinners, and He would rise again from the dead and be exalted at the right hand of the Father. And part of why this passage is so intriguing to me is because of the glimpse that it gives into the conversation that God had within Himself. Christ and the Father having this conversation, this is where it just gets mind-boggling. That there are these glimpses that Scripture gives us, like this one, into the Trinitarian relationship and the conversation that they had. So in this passage, in verse 7, you see Christ coming before his Father and saying, Behold, Father, I have come to do your will. Isn't that incredible? Like You're a fly on the wall in the eternal courts of, of heaven when you read that. Behold, I have come to do your will, Father. Spurgeon says, Observe when he says this. It is in the time of failure. All the sacrifices had failed. The candle flickered and was dying out. And then the great light arose, even the eternal light. And like a trumpet, the words rung out, Lo, or behold, I come. All this has been of no avail. Now I come. It is in the time of failure failure, that Christ always does appear. The last of man is the first of God. And when we have come to the end of all our power and hope, then the eternal power and Godhead appears with its "Lo, I come. This is just flabbergasting to me. that You have these words that David originally spoke a thousand years before Jesus came, but yet they are words that Jesus said in the eternal counsel of God to his father standing before him, saying, I have come to do your will. So he says, Behold, I have come to do your will, Father. The sacrifices and the offerings and the burnt offerings and the sin offerings, you don't desire those, you don't take any pleasure in those, but you have prepared for me a body and I'm going to lay it down. And in my sacrifice, you're going to take pleasure and it's going to satisfy you. And this is something that as Christians, you and I really have to grapple with this. Because the blood of bulls and goats didn't satisfy or please God. And we kind of have to think to ourselves, wow, animals, like we're very sophisticated now and animals mean almost as much as human these days. And so to kill an animal is a really big deal. But what we really need to grapple with, and don't lose your horror at this doctrine, is that it wasn't just a bull with no eternal soul that had to die for you. It was having to be a human sacrifice that had to be given for you. Don't lose your horror at that doctrine that says the requirement to satisfy the God that we claim to worship was the death of one who was fully human. A human sacrifice was offered up for you. So you and I are such repugnant sinners that it took the death of not just any human. It took the death of the perfect Son of God, to satisfy God's wrath for you. And the question that we'll come back to time and time again over the next couple of weeks is do you believe this message in its entirety? And do you trust in it completely for the forgiveness of your sin? And the promise of eternal life. If God were not sovereign, I think that it would be paralyzing as an elder in the church to consider that some of us may not understand the gospel. Some of us may not have really considered and thought through well what it took to actually save us and to fully have our trust and faith. In that message. But this is something that we talk about often. And it's something that we want to implement in our teaching and preaching and conversation. But it can be paralyzing to think that some of us here may not even understand the basics of the gospel well enough to have saving faith. And this is part of the reason for this series. Not only to show you, frankly, how cool it is to look at the Psalms and see Jesus there. That's really cool to me. But part of why this series is so important as an elder is so that my sheep know the basics of the gospel message. The simple truths of what Jesus has done. And so this is a huge part of the reason for having this series. To show you Jesus, yes, from the Psalms, but so that we would rehearse again and again, week after week, the gospel and through this morning's text to understand and to affirm in mind and heart that the pre-existent Christ as God chose to submit himself to the way of salvation, this plan of redemption, come to this earth as the incarnate son of God and live and die and rise again for us. As, as John Gill has said, it must be understood of Christ's incarnation, which was an instance of great love condescension and grace and the reason of it was to do what the law and the blood of bulls and goats could not do it would not be faith in the sacrifices of bulls and goats that would be acceptable long term to God, again, how many millions of animals would have to die for even just one of my sins and ultimately those animals not even being enough and that you could slay all the animals in the world And it wouldn't be enough to atone for your sin and mine. And I think that one of the important things to know about all of those Old Testament sacrifices is how insufficient those sacrifices were. And then let that point you to how sufficient Jesus is. All of those were so insufficient. But Jesus, sufficient to die not only for one of my sins, but for all of my sins and for all of your sins too. So a body had been prepared for Christ. The divine Christ would take on humanity. A body prepared for him. Why? So the divine and the human natures could come together. He would be fully God and fully man. God in the flesh. Dwelling and tabernacling among men. And here he is. Conceived in the flesh of a woman. By the third person of the Trinity. Fully God and fully man. God and man is now residing. So there He stands. Our perfect sacrifice. You take the blood from this divine and human being, you will have the forgiveness of sins. You take the blood of Christ, and not one more animal will have to die. The sacrifices of bulls and goats wouldn't do. They could not do. You could not do enough to lift yourself up to God and to present yourself as spotless. Instead, you needed the only sacrifice that would do. You needed the incarnate God-man, the one who would condescend to the earth, the one who would be spotless, the one who would go to the cross and bear your sin and to satisfy God's wrath for you that was due to pour on you for all eternity, the one who would rise out of the tomb and cause you to rise up too to walk in newness of life. That is what you needed. This is the need of every man. This is the need of every woman who stands in condemnation and in direct fire of the eternal wrath of God. So what does Psalm 40 have to do with the gospel? Well, it shows us that it's the words of Jesus as He's about to come into the world. It shows us that He knew the old sacrifices wouldn't do, that He Himself would do in the body that was prepared for Him. And so taking on this flesh, Jesus would become our substitute. He would take our place, and He would become a baby. He would grow into a man. He would live perfectly According to his father's will. And then he would give up that. Unincarnate body on the cross. And rise in a glorified body. On our behalf. Isn't he good? Let's pray.